Okay, well, it's uh, 9.30, so we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, let me open us with prayer, and then we're going to talk about what to expect here over these 13 weeks and uh, where we're going here. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this wonderful opportunity this morning to come to you in the midst of the cold and the snow. I'm glad that there's a warm place where we can hear these truths about Jesus and have our hearts warmed uh, by your grace. Lord, so over these 13 weeks, as we seek to grow in our understanding of your word, I pray that this can be a beneficial and rewarding time that uh, no longer will we have to necessarily approach Bible reading with a, a sense of duty, but we can have more delight in it, just being aware of the truths and, and how to study your word. So thank you for your grace and faithfulness, Lord, and your mercy extended toward us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I will um, pass around this uh, attendance list. If, if you didn't see your name on here, that's totally fine. Um, just feel free to add it. So that just helps us. Uh, looks like some of you have already signed up, which is great. But um, feel free to add your name if it's not on here or check, check it off if you see it on there. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good to see you. <laughs> well, that is joy. Yep. <laughs> it must be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <We'll stay. laughs> I'm gonna close this door quick. <laughs> Before the other one comes running. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we have notes, um, and I tried to get most of what we were going to say in those notes, so that way, if we didn't get to everything, you'd at least have it to take home and review or use, so that way you don't feel like you're having to write down every single thing. Uh, I'm teaching, uh, John Dindler's teaching, and Jamar Williams will be teaching, and so we'll, we'll be doing a little bit of a rotation. Um, so there, in your uh, notes on that first page there, you'll see the course, you know, kind of the outline laid out. Um, this week, introduction, and we'll be talking about how we got the Bible. Um, I think you'll find that interesting, you know, as you think about different translations. How did we get from the original languages to the translation you're using? Uh, and we'll talk about that process there. Then um, next week... Uh, Let's see, we, this, this may get rotated slightly, um, but Jamar is going to be talking about principles of inductive Bible study. Um, but he's actually going to rotate that back a couple weeks there. Uh, so that's just a little bit out of order. But what's it look like to, how do you do an inductive Bible study? But next week, we're actually doing a, a two-part series on this video called Clarifying the Bible. And in this video... Um, you're going to like it because the uh, video is very engaging, but it's going to give an overview of the whole Bible. So the first week will be on the Old Testament, uh, explaining how the old, the whole Old Testament fits together and the books of the Bible in the Old Testament. And then he'll go through the New Testament. He, he kind of traces out Paul's um, journeys, you know, starts with the Gospels, and then he goes into Paul's journeys and then explains like the different letters. And then he moves into the epistles and then that kind of thing. So you'll get a great overview of the whole Bible. So you'll come away from that um, realizing like, okay, this makes sense to me. I know how the, the whole Bible fits together now. 
And then we'll start to go into the details of things. So, for example, John will be uh, leading us through how do you study sentences or paragraphs or words if you're doing a study. And then we'll be breaking it down. So, like, we'll look at the Gospels. How do you study the Gospels? How do you study the letters? How do you study this apocalyptic, like Revelation uh, or, or um, Ezekiel, you know, some, some of these uh, letters? Then we'll have narrative passages. How do you study narrative passages? How do you study law passages? The prophets and wisdom. So that's uh, really a, kind of an overview of where we're going in this. And if you have any questions along the way, that's the, the fun part about it is we like these not lectures, but lots of dialogue. And one of the things about this class is it'll be very hands-on. So like, for example, if John's teaching on, um, you know, maybe how to do a word study or how to study a paragraph, one of the things he'll probably do is give you uh, a passage of scripture and then you'll do some practice with it. So it'll be more than just content passed along. You'll get a lot of application with this. So I'm going to um, kind of give us a, an introduction today of what this class is about, if you haven't already got that, just a little bit more specifically. And then we're going to look at how we got the Bible. How, how did you get this particular Bible in your hands today? You know, I love those. Well, I don't really love them, but it's pretty common to see, the, you know, those videos um, that people post, like modern translations have taken out verse 14 of this passage. You can't trust them. And people will be like, oh, did you know that? What are we using here? Uh, and it's like, well, there's a lot of mistakes that that person making the video has made. And so I'm hoping that you in this room will be um, aware of that. So when you hear those videos, you can be like, no, <laughs> that's not the case. Let's, let's rethink this here. So I'd actually like to start with a Bible study. Everybody in agreement? That sound good? Uh-huh. Well, study um, goes back to the year 318 A.D. So a Bible study happened in the year 318 A.D. So that's back quite a few years, right? Anybody born then? <laughs> no one's that old. <laughs> um, well, in, the, in around 318 A.D., the, the Bishop of Alexander asked some pastors under his care to pick a hard text from the Bible and study it, and they were to explain it. So a man by the name of Arius, a pastor by the name of Arius, picked one. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 8, because that's the passage he picked, or most likely picked. And so that would seem like a, to be a good place to study, uh, Proverbs chapter 8. And he was going to study on the wisdom of God. So what he most likely would have read in Proverbs 8 was this section on wisdom, verses 22 through 31, where it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, 
when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea to its limit so that the waters might not transgress its, his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man." So Arius uh, began to teach then that this wisdom mentioned here was none other than Christ. So he taught that Proverbs spoke of this wisdom being created, therefore Jesus was created. Uh, and so there was a point in time, you know, well, God always existed, but there became a point in time where the Son was created. And uh, Arius's teaching began to be more popularized and spread, and Alexander got wind of this, and to say he was a little um, concerned would be an understatement, <laughs> the teaching that the Son was created. And so it led to um, a, a very large controversy in the church. And uh, if you're familiar with some church history, Arius was condemned as a heretic, and the church really stood against that. You know, Jesus is not created. So these principles of Bible study matter, right? Because otherwise you end up with coming away with this conclusion like this from Proverbs chapter 8, that, oh, he's... This is Jesus he's talking about, therefore Jesus was created. So that's one of the reasons why a Bible study or why studying the Bible well is so important. So I'd like to throw a question out to you all. Why, do you, why should we seek to understand the Bible correctly? What are your thoughts on that? Ellen? All things, it gives you all things pertaining to life and godliness, to quote the text. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, good. John? We're commanded to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. To know God. To know God, yep, good. <laughs> and if you're coming in today, and uh, I'm glad we had a proper, I didn't print off enough notes, so I'll make sure to get more notes for next time. So if you don't um, hear them today, feel, you know, know that they'll be in here next week. But this, that's right. Those are some good reasons. Why else? What, what might some other reasons be to study the Bible well? Key to life. Key to life, yeah. Mm -hmm. Find answers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Good. It's kind of a good way for us to measure. Not that we, not that we quantify or qualify, but how are we doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would there be anybody in here that would say, no, we don't really need to seek to understand the Bible correctly. Like, it doesn't really matter. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Okay, so we're, we're in a good place then. 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about studying um, to show yourself a workman approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if Paul, you know, in part of his occupation was a tent maker, and you were cutting these skins, and it, you know precision mattered a great deal. You know if you're trying to make something, and one half of the thing is like two inches longer than the other half. I don't know a lot about folding, but I know that that's a little bit harder, right? If things don't match up, so you kind of want things to be really square and um, measured well, like that. Otherwise, it doesn't work too good. So you guys have hit on a lot of good answers right there. I mean, and ultimately, if we love God, we want to get to know Him better. So it's kind of like a person, you know, if you, if you love them well, you're not satisfied with just knowing a little bit about them or being okay if it's wrong, what you know about them. You like really seek to, to truly know them. So there's a fancy word for this kind of Bible study or this studying of the Bible. 
So, but don't get scared by it. We, the fancy word is hermeneutics, and that comes from the Greek word hermenia, which means interpretation. So there on the Emmaus Road, Jesus was walking with a couple of those disciples, and he interpreted to them what the Scripture said about them. This verb is used there. So Scripture takes interpretation to understand. We don't simply read it and automatically get the meaning. And some of you may have been brought up in a, a kind of church that sort of assumed that, that you can, you can just kind of go into a study and you don't have to study it, that the Spirit will just give you the understanding. And, and there's almost this, oh, I feel so bad for all you people who think you have to actually study the Bible because it's just as simple as I just go and just God tells me what it is, <laughs> right? That's not how it works. So, of course, it takes the Spirit to open our hearts to be able to see those truths, but that doesn't come apart from the work of seeking to interpret it correctly. So our starting point for the study is going to be uh, the fact that God is a speaking God and that He communicates to us in language that is sufficient to be able to, um, for us to understand. So in other words, uh, it's not our place to pick and choose how we want to learn from God. You know, we're not in a place where we can say, God, you should have just like put it in a balloon in the sky or you should have just filled my mind with it. You know, God has chosen this language of, of speech to communicate to us. And the speech comes through his word. So we take his word seriously because that's the method God has chosen to communicate with us. So does anybody know uh, where this word, you know, we talk about, we've been talking about the word Bible. Where, where does the word Bible come from? Anyone know? Biblia. Mm -hmm. And what's that mean? Books. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it comes, it's from the Latin, it comes from the, this word books, um, of course, which came from a Greek word that described this papyrus. Uh, that was an ancient writing material they used to make scrolls. And so, uh, you know, from time to time you'll run into um, some, some different cults, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, who will say, well, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible as if, you know, that solves everything, to which we could say, well, actually, neither is the word Bible, you know, so <laughs> it's a, uh, the word, the word Bible itself is not found in the Bible, there, the word is books, but of course, it's just, it's a, it's an accurate term, right, we're, what we're talking about, when we're talking about the Bible is God's word. So what I want to do is, I want to start with the original um, manuscripts, the original copies, the original, uh, I should say, autographs that the apostles and the biblical writers wrote, and then go on a journey, taking you on this road to how we got this book today that you have sitting in front of you, and maybe why it's different from somebody who's using uh, an NIV translation or a New American Standard translation. So we wanna, we wanna talk about that. But let me ask you this question first. What we want to talk about is um, we're going to start with the inspiration of Scripture, and we want to then talk about how does that impact the copy of God's Word that you have in front of you today. So part of these doctrines are explained in your Christian theology number one class. So I'm not today, I'm not going to go repeat all those things about 
the authority of Scripture or a lot about the inspiration of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay, there's, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but if you take the Christian Theology 1 class, they'll go into a lot of detail about that. So we don't need to, to do that today. So I'm, I'm coming in here today just to make the claim that the Bible is inspired by God. So it doesn't simply have human authors. It has a divine author. The people didn't just write whatever they wanted. They were God was moving in them to inspire all of the words. And they wrote uh, a, a word we, we call inerrant, which means without error. We could also add another word, infallible, which means it's not capable of error. So I'm I'm writing I'm, I'm addressing you today, and I'm just going to state that and assume that. And if you're if you have questions more about that, then take the theology one class, and we'll go into a lot more detail about that. But there's an objection, okay? So so some people object and say, how does it help us to say that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, meaning it doesn't have any errors uh, in it, if we don't have the words that God inerrantly inspired? but only words copied by scribes, sometimes correctly, but sometimes incorrectly. What good is it to say that the autographs or the originals were inspired? We don't have the originals. What we have is error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently in thousands of ways. So that's our famous Bart Ehrman, uh, professor uh, at, um, uh, he's in the Southeast. Um, I can't remember what university that is, but he's an agnostic. At one time, he professed to be a Christian, but no longer is. But he's, he's a very popular writer in terms of this kind of argument. So you could kind of boil it down, really, if you're confused about what I'm saying. And, and Bart Ehrman is saying, why do you Christians say that the Bible is without error if we don't actually have the original words of God? What you have is a copy of that, probably hundreds of copies of that, you know, in a sense. It's very far removed from the original, and it's full of errors. So why can we even say that the Bible is without error? Because we don't have the originals. What would you say to that? Have you ever studied how it was done? <laughs> oh, sure I have. I'm an expert. I'm a New Testament professor. <laughs> <laughs> because the people that were copying it, that was their sole focus. And if you are giving your time and attention to something that you're passionate about, you're going to make sure it's right. And then also um, compared to like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the oldest writings we do have, they're the same. Mm -hmm. Good. So Bart, Bart might say, but Noel, did you, did you realize that there's over Let's see if I have the number here. There's over uh, there's over six thousand errors in the manuscripts. So how can you trust them if there's over six thousand differences between the originals and what we have today? Joe makes errors, and I still trust him on that. <laughs> 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 you know, like, it's errors. It's... You compare them to the originals in order to find the originals. Hmm. Do what? Who compared them to the original copies, and who found the original copies? They've been missing for thousands of years. 
Yeah, so to which he would say, well, that proves my point. We, ha we don't even know what the originals really said. We can't even be sure that uh, what we have here today is even close to the original. That's, no, that's not my point. That's Bart's point, right? <laughs> but we trust God. You know, say, trust and faith that, you know, the people we know, you know, wrote these books were, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit and the words of God, you know, that we trust that this is God's truth written through someone else. So it's more trust and faith, I feel like. Good. Good. Did you ever hear the Isaiah scroll? Mm-hmm. You people who haven't, there's a scroll found at Qumran about the 40s, right after World War II. And it's a scroll in the book of Isaiah from that time. And there are some differences, but there's spellings of place names. Other than that, it's identical. Mm -hmm. That's how much care they put into making sure they were right. So if we could um, summarize this. This is his argument, okay? And so... What he's saying is, here's the original. You know, so like... Uh, what God originally told to Moses, for example, that he wrote down, or to Paul, or to uh, James, or to John. Um, and so it is true that we actually do not have any of the originals. There, we, we don't. Okay, Nobody would claim that we do. So he would say, his argument is then, we no longer have the originals. So he would say, okay, this is um, inerrant, so, so no errors. But you no longer have this. Therefore, what you have are copies that are full of errors. Therefore, you can't really trust the Bible. So what these truths about Jesus and stuff, those were simply what early Christians believed that were added to the, the New Testament. So it wasn't what God said. It was the beliefs of these early Christians that were added. Okay, so you, you get to the end result of, I can't really trust what's written in there. But we don't have to go this route, okay? So what I'm saying is um, we would agree that this is true. Okay, so that's Bart. Here's the, the Christian view of this. Um, so you have the original. But what is what we're talking about when we're talking about being inspired by God in an errant are not the physical copies themselves, okay, but the words. And so as long as the words are accurately passed on, we can still say that they are without error and inspired. It's not about the paper it was on. It wasn't even paper. You know, the parchment or the, the rock or whatever it was with on on. It's, it's about what was said. And so, therefore, our copies are accurate. Therefore, we can trust them.
Okay, so that's kind of the, the short answer to that is when we talk about inerrancy and with, with being incapable of error and um, being inspired by God, we're not talking about the document itself. We're talking about the words. And so as long as that's passed on accurately, we can say those same truths about them. Now, I will readily grant you that we are aware of a number of scribal errors. And if anybody has an issue with this, just try copying a passage of the Bible yourself. Do it a few times and see if you can do it without error. Do it then in a dark room with, uh, with uh, a feather that you're filling with ink while someone's calling out to you the words. And then tell me how well you can do. <laughs> Somewhere along the lines, you're going to make an error, but the error could be as simple as a spelling error. It could be something of a word out of place. And so Bart Ehrman and people like that count all of that as an error. So even if you've got 99% of the word right, but you, you know, switch the E and the I around, oh, that's an error. There's an error in the Bible. Really? Does it affect anything? You spelled the word wrong. Okay, it's okay. We know what you mean by that. Or say you have a sentence in which you switch a couple of words out of place. You haven't changed the meaning of the sentence, but they count that as an error. So it's, a, it's a, almost a scare tactic. It can be very intimidating at first to hear that. Like as a Christian, I don't know how to respond when somebody tells me the Bible is so full of, you know, these copies are full of errors. But upon breaking it down, you, you begin to realize that's not an issue. It's nowhere near what they're trying to make it seem to be. So God could have perfectly preserved the copies, but he didn't. So God could have superseded over that. He, he could have made it so that the translation you have today has absolutely no scribal errors in it. He didn't. Why not? Or God could have given us the original manuscripts. So we could have had a library somewhere where we could find, you know, this is the first letter to the Corinthians that Paul himself wrote. Or these were the stone tablets that God with his finger wrote the commandments to Moses. We don't have any of that. Any thoughts on why? Ellen? It would become an object of worship. Yeah. Yep. So just like in the wilderness, um, you have that pole that had the serpent on it that ended up uh, being, you know, the people looked to it when they were bitten by the snakes and it saved them, it, it delivered them. Well, later on, it becomes an object of worship. They, they, become, they fall into idolatry because of it. So I'm afraid that, and the Lord knew this, that if there was those manuscripts perfectly preserved, we'd, we'd be taking the trek to the Holy Land like, we got to get a group together next year. We've, we're going to go to the library in Rome. And, and you have, as a Christian, Noel, you have to go to Rome and lay your eyes on the original manuscript that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, or you're just not a good enough Christian if you don't do that. You know, we'd, we'd probably fall into all kinds of traps. So God, oh, sorry. I think of like very Old Testament thinking too, like only a select few can read and interpret these texts. So like, I love thinking in that way that as our language, you know, progressed over time, like God gave us this wisdom that we can truly understand it too, where I feel like that is very Old Testament mm -hmm. thinking too of that select few. Yeah, good, good. 
And so even if we had the originals, it still wouldn't solve all our problems in obeying God's word, right? I think that's the problem for all of us. Is it's not so much not knowing what God says, but, but carrying it out. So God could have given us perfect copies, but God could have also given us perfect translations, perfect teaching, and perfect application. And so he didn't give us perfection in these things, I think, to remind us that we need other people in the body to help us. We're not, we can't do this alone. We need others in there. So let's talk about this journey then from the Old Testament to where we're at today. Okay, so the Old Testament, uh, the word testament is a covenant. It defines the relationships between the two parties. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There was a little bit of Aramaic. Some of your books are in Aramaic, uh, but, but mainly written in Hebrew. Um, Hebrew is a tough language. It's written uh, very differently than English. It's, you read it right to left instead of left to right. Uh, so very, very challenging there. But many authors of the Old Testament, well, certainly we know Moses was one of them, uh, but Moses probably used some other sources in his work. But the authority of the Old Testament doesn't depend on whether or not we know all of the authors. And as they wrote, they would write on things like stone, copper, wood, papyrus, leather, parchment, or, or even clay. So the, the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, didn't have any vowels in it. And there weren't distinctions between upper and lower case. So, I mean, just <laughs> imagine having fun with that kind of writing. And even you'll see in the New Testament, the, even Greek um, didn't have any punctuation. It was all uppercase as well. So, I mean, all this punctuation, that's, that's been added in, right, to help us read that. But from the very beginning, um, these sacred writings were kept safe. So Joshua 24, 26 even indicates there that there was this preserving of these sacred writings. So there was a recognition, uh, even at this point, that God is inspiring um, these writers or certain people to, to write some things here. And so what's being inspired is being preserved. There was a, a school of prophets uh, who helped preserve the books. It talks about that in 1 Samuel 19.20, um, some other passage places too, like, like Ezekiel, Daniel, Nehemiah. Uh, and so these group of, later on, these group of teachers and interpreters called scribes arose to preserve the writing. So that was part of their job, to keep it safe. So the Old Testament, you see that word canon there, um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. It doesn't mean the kind of thing that shoots a, a big ball out of it. It means a measuring stick, a ruling stick. That was completed about 400 years before Christ. So in other words, the, the books that were considered um, the sacred writings of God were all completed 400 years before Jesus. So after the book of Malachi, there's no indication from any New Testament writer that anything else was written that was authoritative on the same level of Scripture. Now, we get to talk about a little bit today about a couple areas that are um, books that I find very interesting called the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. So we'll talk about how they fit in, but we'll just hold off on that for a moment. Now, in the fifth century, um, these Jewish, Jewish scholars uh, began to develop practices for copying the Old Testament. They would add vowel marks, um, accents, and notes to make sure the readings of the, of the copies were kept very accurate. So they knew how many letters and words were in every book and which letters and words were at the centers of the books. 
So just as a way to double check themselves. So if you get to the middle of the book and you're like, oh man, I'm on the wrong word count here. <laughs> like you don't have a computer to go back and say, oh, I need to adjust some things. It's kind of like, oh, that's got to go in the trash and I've got to start all over. So a lot of incentive to be pretty accurate here. A and modern, a modern Torah scroll for worship costs forty to fifty thousand dollars. True. It has to be hand copied, and all that has to go on. And if you make a mistake, you can't correct it. You have to bury it and start over. <laughs> so they are very careful about not making mistakes. It takes you what nine months to make one. Talk about writer's cramp. Because they're very careful. That's why the reason I say it's pretty accurate. Because you, yeah. know, you lose nine months' pay if you make a <laughs> Joel, do you think you could get your hands on one of those for us? Well, those buried ones, no. No, a real one. Uh, I've got a miniature copy. I can bring it in if you want me. To. That'd be great. Yeah, okay. take a look at that. That'd be neat. And you mentioned the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, or a couple of you have. Those, in, in 1947, a shepherd boy throws a rock into a cave and hears a breaking of the clay pots and goes down there and they find all of these scrolls and they don't realize the significance of it. But as they're unpacking these and studying them, they find a lot of biblical texts in there and they're able to double check and it confirmed the accuracy of the, the translations that we have and the, and the text that we have. So one of the scrolls of, uh, found the book of Isaiah was written uh, 100 years before Christ, but it matched with this text that was written 1,000 years later. So that's another tactic of people like Bart Ehrman. They'll accuse Christians of the telephone game. You know, if I start with Tyler and try to pass a message back to Josh in the back row, we laugh at how different it becomes. And they say, well, it's the same thing that happened with the Bible. But our double checking reveals, no, it actually didn't happen like that. We, you know, it's very accurate. So um, next week, as you watch the video, uh, the writer the, or the the leader of the video is going to help you um, think of the Old Testament in kind of three different groupings. Um, there's a couple ways to break down, you know, the division in our English Bible and then uh, the Hebrew Old Testament. So, for example, um, there's 39 books uh, in the English Bible, and we we can break them up into four categories. The Law, uh, the first five books of the Bible, um, History, 12 books. Poetry, five books, and then the prophets, 17 books. Uh, so in the video next week, you're going to see it's um, historical, uh, poetic, and then prophetic. So kind of a, a threefold separation right there. So whether you do four or three, you still uh, kind of get to the same place. The Hebrew Old Testament, there, were, there was a threefold division, uh, 24 total books. So some of the books that were two books in our Bibles, like Kings or Chronicles or Samuel, those were only one book, you know, originally, but we've broken them up into two. And so they broke it up into the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And you've got some information there on, you know, you look at the words, the word count uh, in these books right there. And so... You see the um, really the closeness, uh, how, how these match up there. Um, so it's not, this, this Old Testament was not a result of random forces or like many people believe, just a gradual collection over a period of time. Um, it's God who's ordaining and orchestrating the whole Bible to be written to produce this one unified story. So it's not like you have this, you know, you kind of get to the end and Revelation and the Lord's like, 
you know, it'd be probably be a good idea if we just made this whole thing one, one package here, you know, and kind of did it like that. It's like from the very beginning, God had a plan for all of these books in there. So the question that will come up is, what books belong in the Bible? I mean, how do you know that the books that are in here are the ones that are supposed to be in here? Or maybe another question is, say we discover some, someday uh, Paul's third letter to the Corinthians. Would we add that to the Bible? You think we would? Corinthians 3, Corinthians 4? <laughs> Why not? I mean, Paul wrote it. <laughs> I feel like <clears throat> add in Pastor Josh but there's this understanding that the biblical text is complete mm -hmm. already so we yep. shouldn't be adding in our own words or the words of others because the truth is already there at the core that's right good good answer yep exactly so the Jewish community from the time of Moses was about collecting and preserving these writings. And this language of canon, you know, that's, that's our language, but it means a rod or a measuring stick. So the books in the Bible are what we call the canon of Scripture. There's a standard to which they meet. It's not just any old writing. There's a very particular standard that they have to meet. So they, uh, so the books in the Old Testament didn't get their authority um, because they were put into the canon. Instead, they were recognized by having that divine authority, and therefore they were included. So in other words, what this means is nowhere in the Old Testament did they have a vote. Hey, let's all get together and vote what books we think should be in and what books we think shouldn't. It, it wasn't like that. They recognized all along there's authority in these. They should be part of that. And so they, they simply recognized that authority. They didn't like vote to put them in. Again, I've mentioned that it was closed by three to 400 years before Christ. So following Malachi, uh, no new books were added to the canon of Scripture. Uh, these, these works were considered sacred. They were kept beside the Ark of the Covenant, Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26. They were authoritative, so they came from God and had supreme authority. So if you, were, if you were saying, you know, what books do we recognize as being inspired by God and part of the Holy Scriptures, they were sacred, they were authoritative. It's, they said they would defile the hands, so that the books that were sacred or holy would defile the hands of those that used them. Um, only books that demanded the user undergo a special ceremonial cleansing were regarded as canonical. So in other words, people reading the, the books of the Bible, like you come away realizing God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's not just I'm reading some you know, novel off the street or something like that. And then prophetic. Uh, a book had to be written by a prophet of the Lord during a prophetic period. So what doesn't make a book part of Scripture or part of the canon? Well, for one, age. Just because something is old doesn't mean it should be included in the Bible. You've got a chart a little bit later on that talks about um, like Homer, the Odyssey, you know, works like that. Those are old writings, but we don't put them in the Bible. So just because it's old doesn't make it special. Just because it was written in Hebrew 
doesn't mean we should put it in the Bible. There's a lot of things written in Hebrew that are not in the Bible, and that's okay. Uh, just because it agrees with uh, the Torah doesn't mean that we should put it in there. And religious value. So people could look at a book having religious value in a lot of different ways, but just because somebody thinks that the book has religious value doesn't mean it should be part of our sacred scriptures. Have you ever read the books of Enoch? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's example a good example. About. I read it too. It's fascinating. Uh-huh. I don't think it should be part of the Bible either. Yep. <laughs> So again, you kind of summarize this, and the books in, in, our, in our canon, the books in the Bible, um, must claim to be from God. They must be written by a servant of God or someone with divine authority. They have to be true, tell the truth about God, not have any contradictions. They must have life-changing words of God, and the book must be accepted by the original audience as a book from God. So the Jews throughout the centuries were recognizing that and affirming those things, and anything that didn't fit that criteria, they never would consider um, Scripture. So the process of a book being written, you know, being inspired, and, and getting it to, uh, in the sense of being part of the canon, um, so God inspired the writing, godly men recognized the writing, and then the people of God preserved the writing. That's the, that's the process of it. So again, there's no like a vote. It's not that kind of a process, but it's, um, it's all superseded by God. Now that, that brings us to a question of the Apocrypha. How many of you have heard of the Apocrypha? Okay. Anybody want to give me a little summary of what that is for those who don't know? There are books that are in the Catholic Bible that aren't in our Bible. Yep, good. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that, you know, from time to time, you'll see somebody trying to make the case of, oh, they, the Apocrypha has been, you know, there's missing books from the Bible. See, they just picked, hand-picked books that should be in there and left out all these other ones, you know, that kind of thing. What they're talking about is the Apocrypha. So these 15 books, they were written after Malachi and before Christ. They're in the Catholic Bible, but not ours. Some of these books would be Wisdom of Solomon, First uh, and Second Maccabees, uh, Baruch. Uh, Maccabees is a really fascinating book. Um, the, the Apocrypha is a very interesting read. Uh, I, I mean, I enjoy reading it, but it's not Scripture. Okay, So we're never going to preach on the Apocrypha or treat it like the Bible. But uh, they... they are helpful in the sense of they help us understand what the Jews believed during that period of time. So there's a usefulness from that part of it. But they were never included in the canon of Scripture because the Jewish community never accepted them as canonical. So the Jews didn't believe that they were inspired. Jesus and the New Testament writers don't cite them. Uh, now, some of you, you might say, well, what about Jude, who references uh, the book of Enoch there? Well, we can talk about that a little later on. Um, but they're not, they're not cited as uh, authoritative, as part of Scripture. The most early church fathers rejected them. Uh, and then the Apocrypha doesn't claim to be prophetic. It doesn't claim to be the in, uh, inerrant, inspired word of God. There's historical errors in there. 
And some of those, I believe, are intentional, even to show, even to demonstrate, like, we're not trying to write this on the same level of Scripture. So, it was rejected by the people it was originally presented to, and the Jews still haven't changed their position on this. Uh, in the community I came from, you know, in Tennessee, there was this one fellow who came on a Wednesday night, and he had an axe to grind about this. And so it made for a very interesting Bible study. <laughs> we, we had a good time. I don't know if he felt the same way. But uh, he was very insistent that he was going to prove to us that, the, uh, that we have eliminated books from the Bible that should be in there on the Apocrypha. So you'll run into people like that, you know, here and there. Any questions on that? So we would describe that as these are books that are in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Protestant Bible. That's how you would like. That's right. Okay. Yep. I just said, like, what I wrote in my notes, books that are in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Protestant Bible is what I wrote down. Yep. And they are interesting books. I mean, and they, they have a lot, again, they have, uh, they contain Jewish beliefs about different things that are useful to understand how did the Jews believe about, you know, di different things. Um, Maccabees, for example, was, it's, I, I like Maccabees because one of the stories in the Maccabees is about a mother and her seven sons and um, they're called to renounce their faith and they're all getting killed for not doing this and eventually the mom gets killed. You know, so you, you understand that the Jews at this time were in facing a lot of persecution and pressure to compromise, and you, you it helps us understand how they were responding, you know, in the midst of their faith. But, yeah, again, they're not on the same level as Scripture. It would kind of be like in our time, you know, you'll hear us as pastors sometimes quote from different authors, like, uh, so-and-so said this. We're not claiming that that person is inspired or at the same level of scripture, but it's it's a more helpful source than say like Joe Smith on the street, right? It's yeah. I I wanted to ask a question. So like Tyler's family was raised in the Catholic Church, so when they do a reading and they say it's from the Book of Wisdom, I would always assume that came from Proverbs. But is it from this like Wisdom of Solomon book that's in there or? Is that used interchangeably? Do you know? It's a good question. I, I could see it being used interchangeably there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just curious. Yeah. Well, the story of Maccabees is so interesting because it tells about about seven days when the oil did not run out. Uh -huh. It was only supposed to be mm -hmm. one day of oil, and it lasted for seven days, and that gives them their holiday of Hanukkah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And it's in the book of Maccabees. Yeah. So, yeah, we can, I mean, there's a lot of very, uh, you know, you'll, you'll read about um, what did they believe about back in Genesis with the angels, you know, the sons of God. What did the Jews believe about that? You'll read their understanding of that or just a lot of different things. But again, it, you got to be careful that you don't think it's true just because that's what they believed or some of them believed. Um, the suit of, the other so you have the Apocrypha, but there's another section of books called the Pseudepigrapha, and those would be the false writings. So they were claimed, they claimed to be written, say, by um, Eve or uh, Esther or a lot of the biblical characters. They'll have their name on it, but it clearly wasn't. It's a false name. And so already you have a problem like that, right? It's claiming to be written by somebody that it wasn't. Those are a little drier. Some, some of them are more interesting, but others are a little bit more dry. But you'll get a lot of, you know, that's a whole, it's like two volumes. There's like two volumes. So there's a lot of Jewish books, but they're not canonical. 
But back to um, back to the New Testament here. Uh, as we get to the New Testament, there's this realization that we need to do something with the stories of Jesus. Why? Because there's persecution, and we can't be everywhere. Uh, the apostles and the eyewitnesses are dying. So if we don't preserve these things, then who's going to verify the story or tell the story? Because you think about during this time, if, if somebody came along, you know, if, if Derek was here and, and Derek said, I have the story about Jesus, and, and Jesus, uh, he was cutting this board for his dad, and, he, and, he, and, and Joseph cut it two inches too short, and, and Jesus stretched the board. Wow. And you know, somebody like Peter could say, Derek, no. Jesus never told that story. <laughs> you know, so while the apostles were alive, that was a, there was a lot of double checking there. But as Christianity spreads and they're dying out, they need a way to, um, to keep these, these truths. So they begin to write them down. Uh, I want, what I want to highlight here is that no church council created the canon of Scripture, especially the New Testament. Okay, so the Old Testament is very set. There's very little disputes about the books in the Old Testament. Most of the disputes are regarding the New Testament, what letters should be in that. Okay, And there's this argument out there, and you'll hear it about every Christmas or Easter, that this council in the early church all got together and voted what books of the Bible should be in, and some of them aren't in because they just didn't get voted in. And that's a flat-out lie. It's an ignorance of church history that never happened that way. This, this council only recognized the books. They didn't vote them in. They, they affirmed them. Okay? So Christians throughout the years were affirming and, and saying, these are books are part of, of, of the canon. And then there was an, a, sort of this more official council that kind of put their stamp of approval on that. But it wasn't some kind of vote about, hey, is First Peter in and Second Peter out? It wasn't anything like that. So by the, by the 5th century, all the New Testament books were accepted as, as canon by the universal church. There weren't any more questions. So there's um, a chart, you know, a graph in your notes there, just illustrating the difference between uh, the New Testament and some of these other writings. So it, it answers a lot of objections. You know, people will say, um, we don't have very many copies of the New Testament, or there's errors in them, or, you know, things like this. But look at the difference. Look at how much more reliable the New Testament is than, say, like Homer or Plato or Caesar or Pliony. Like, for example, the time gap with Homer's Iliad between the, between the earliest copies and uh, the... Um, the first copy we have is 400 years, or when it was written was 400 years. Okay, so, so 400 years between when it happened and when it was written. That's a big gap. And we only have around 600 some copies of that. But compare that to the New Testament. And when the gospel um, stories are happening and when they're written down, there's, there's a time gap of, of less than 50 years. And we have over 5,000 copies, not of necessarily the whole document, but parts of it or fragments of it. So we have way more copies than, I mean, look at that. You have, uh, you know, Plato. 
seven copies. But no historical scholar is saying, guys, we should be a little hesitant about Plato here. We really don't know if that's what he said. We can't really trust that. You know, it's just assumed that's what he said. So there's not the same standard between the secular writing versus the Bible. And, and this chart helps you, helps you see that. So like the Iliad, for example, 15,000 lines. There's over 700 lines that we don't really know if it said that. So it's considered 5% corrupt. The New Testament, 20,000 lines, essentially 400 words are in question, less than 1%, right? So when you look at this, you can see that there's a different standard being used for the Bible than there is for other writings, and that's very unfortunate. Now, I wanna skip, uh, as we close here, um, to uh, the history of Bible translation. So originally the Old Testament in Hebrew, then as the Jews uh, are no longer speaking Hebrew, they need a translation that's gonna be in, in their language. And so it becomes Greek. They need a Greek copy. We call that the Septuagint. Or uh, you can see it uh, abbreviated LXX, so 70. Okay, so this is the Bible of Jesus' time, was the Septuagint. Uh, and so even in your, your study Bibles, for example, you're going to probably have a note here along the way that says, the Masoretic text says this, the Septuagint says this. Okay, so they're referring to the Hebrew, the Hebrew text versus the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And at some places, there is some difference, nothing major, but they'll, they'll at time, your study Bible at times will point that out. But, but again, the reason for this Greek translation of the Old Testament is that the Jews are no longer speaking Hebrew for the most part. Some of them are, but many of them are not. So you, you and, and the reason for that is the captivity. They go into captivity, the official language is Aramaic. Then after that, you know, you have Alexander the Great, you have Greek coming on. Um, eventually, even in the time of the first century, you have Latin starting to emerge. So Jesus probably knew Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. And so Jesus' native tongue was more like, most likely Aramaic, although he probably spoke a lot in Greek and perhaps some Latin right there. But eventually, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, um, Latin really becomes to be the predominant language, no longer Greek. So what's that mean for our Bibles? Well, it means you need a Bible in Latin, right? If, if you are now speaking Latin and reading Latin and your copies of the Bible are in Greek, it'd be like me giving you a Greek copy. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> so it creates this, um, this need for a Latin Bible. And so um, Jerome, one of the early church fathers, uh, it's called the Vulgate. It was the unofficial Bible of the Middle Ages until the Council of Trent, where it was made the official Bible of the Catholic Church. Why? Because the people were speaking in Latin. But then you have the rise of the English language. So the English language begins to be developed. It's really a combination of some different languages. And eventually English um, becomes the predominant language. And so you're familiar enough to know, like in the Catholic Church, for example, part of the issue was pe the people didn't know Latin. 
And so they couldn't understand if what they're, they couldn't, didn't know what they're reading or what they're hearing. And they're just assuming that what they're being taught is accurate. And then Christians later on say, hey, we can do better than this. We need a Bible that you can understand. We, you shouldn't be just depending on somebody to give you that message. You yourself need to be able to read that. And so John Wycliffe, he's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He publishes the first English Bible, hand-copied in 1382. And it was a capital offense to translate the Bible into English during that time. So you did that, you die. And they, you know, if you did that, they would burn you with, your, with the Bible around your neck. What cracks me up is in 1428, they dig up his body and they burn it for good measure. <laughs> so it's like, I know he's dead already, but we're just going to do it for the spite of it because he translated the Bible into English. So this is, this is something as we read our English Bibles to think about is people were burned and died so that you could have a Bible that you can read and understand. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And here we are, you know, sometimes like, oh, I just don't have any time to read the Bible. And I wonder what they would think. Like, hey, guys, I, I was burned so that you could have a Bible you could read. Uh, the printing press in 1454 changes things. Now these things can be printed and you can distribute them a lot more quickly. So William Tyndale um, publishes the first printed English New Testament he made his translations based on Greek and Hebrew, so he goes back to the Greek and Hebrew. And it was his uh, revisions that formed a lot of the work of the King James Version. So a lot of the King James Version is based off of Tyndale's work. And he gets burned at the stake <laughs> for doing that. His last eyes are, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Then you have a few other people here. Um, you have some of the first Bibles, like the Great Bible. Uh, it was called the Great Bible because it was great size. This thing's like this big. Okay, so it's not a pocket-sized Bible. The Geneva Bible um, becomes the first English Bible with verse divisions. And it was called the Bible of the people. It was used extensively among the Puritans. Then... Essentially, um, there's not a huge, you know, none of these Bibles are the Bible. So uh, we get to the King James Version, and there was this um, desire to make one Bible that really would be affirmed or recognized by many different uh, parties right here. It was to be based on the original Greek and Hebrew text without marginal notes. 90% um, of it, of the New Testament, comes from Tyndale. And this Bible superseded all English translations at that time. And this Bible had no equal for over three centuries. It's not until the 1960s that you have actually really any other competition to the King James Bible. So you have these periods. You have, you know, the first period is from William Tyndale to the King James Version. And then the second period is from uh, the 1950s until now. So in the 1950s, you started to have more translations. And there's a difference between a translation, a revision, and a paraphrase. So a translation goes all the way back to the Greek and Hebrew and comes up you know, with, a, with a fresh translation. A revision starts with an existing translation and revises it. It updates it. Okay, so as you're reading your Bibles, it's, it's helpful to know that. So the ESV is technically a revision, 
the NIV is technically a translation. The message is a paraphrase. It's not a translation at all. All right, so we're going to end right there for today. Um, I think before we do our video next week, I'll run through qualities of a good translation, and then we'll jump into this video on understanding the Old Testament. So thanks for coming today, and look forward to seeing you next week.